Now you turn to First Timothy, I want you to be thinking about, but not turning there, to one of probably the most popular verses in all of Scripture, aside from John 3.16, uh, would probably be Romans 8.28. Right? Y'all, this verse is on more coffee cups and t-shirts and cute little Facebook memes and things like that. It is so very well known. Right? But unfortunately, it's also very misunderstood um, and misused and maybe even abused at times. Uh, but folks love this verse, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called, in, called according to His purpose, right? So we love this verse, right? Because it promises good, right? The, the issue comes in is... Who actually gets to define what good is? Right. Uh, does God get to define it, or do we just want to define it based on how we really wish it would be? Okay. Um, now, this is not a sermon on Romans 8.28. It deserves a sermon all by itself. All right. But I bring it up this morning because rightly understood the good in Romans 8.28 is about our sanctification. It's about our growth in, in godliness. In fact, one verse later, if you, if you read verse 29, which we're not going to do this morning, it tells you this purpose that's referred to in 28 is that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. Right? So that's what it's all about. And that's some of what we've been talking about from 1 Timothy. Is, is progress in godliness, growth in godliness, our sanctification. And we've been talking about how the gospel is the only fuel for that change. And so in the context of 1 Timothy, we know that Timothy's got some trouble on his hands in these churches in Ephesus that he's ministering at because the gospel, instead of being proclaimed, has been sidelined and false teachers there have been proclaiming a different doctrine, something other than the gospel. And so instead of godliness that results from the gospel, we've got a bunch of problems Springing up. And so as we get into chapter 5 this morning, we'll see some of those problems that come up because the gospel's not being proclaimed. But we'll see that, that in these problems, there are actually, when the gospel is proclaimed, great opportunities for their good. Right? Capital G good, like Romans 8.28 good. Right? There are opportunities for for those Christians to receive good from the Lord, there's opportunities for us to receive good from the Lord's hand if the gospel is proclaimed and trusted as the source for change and growth. So if you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, read 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through uh, 16. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. 
She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are really widows. May God add his blessing to the hearing, to the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. And let's pray together asking for the help that we need. Uh, God, we are needy. We are dependent upon you uh, for every breath and certainly for understanding your very words. And so Holy Spirit, come in this moment and illumine these words that you inspired and that you carried along the authors while they wrote them down. Give us understanding. Give us insight. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see his glorious and his beautiful gospel. Grant to us the faith that we need to believe it, And to rest in it, we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So again, thinking in terms of good and all things working together for our good, right, at God's hand, at his orchestration, there's several groups of folks in this passage for whom good is available. The good that can bring about Growth and godliness through the gospel. So uh, I've listed those in your outline for you in the worship folder. Uh, Those in need of correction. Then we've got older widows and we've got younger widows. Let's turn first to those in need of correction. So look at this first paragraph in verses 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him. So already we can see here that some correction is needed. Right? Don't rebuke, I think the New American Standard says, don't rebuke harshly, right? There's, there's some correction that's needed. That's, in, that's implied here. And in Ephesus, where Timothy is ministering, where the gospel has been sidelined by this different doctrine, y'all, there's lots of correction that needs to take place. Okay? And so Paul's giving Timothy just some real practical and helpful instructions, right? When, in, when correction is needed you've got to be careful how you do it, right? There, there's a right way, there's a helpful way to go about it. And so in essence, what Paul is giving to Timothy is, 
is these words of, of advice that, that seeing the church as a family is going to be helpful for you. Seeing this older man who you need to correct as a father, right, that's going to be helpful, right? If, if we would treat each other with the love and the gentleness that we would, at least I hope we would, treat someone in our family with, Right? That's going to go a long way in offering them this correction. Because you see, the, the older man doesn't just get a pass because he's older. Right? You don't just say, well, he's older, I'm not going to address him about his sin or about this error. That'd be unloving. But as I address him, I am going to address him with respect and with care and, and with love. And not rebuking harshly, but I'm going to encourage him. I'm going to appeal to him. Right? So, so that seems pretty obvious to me. Now here's a question for you. Right? How does the gospel transform how this correction happens? Right? How does the gospel come to bear? Right? Hopefully it would come to bear on how we would give the correction. Right? And we'd think about how our Father corrects us. How our Father in His kindness leads us to repentance. Right? So hopefully it would transfer, transform how we would give the correction. But I hope too it would transform how we're able to receive the correction. Think about this different doctrine that the false teachers were putting forth. If you've, if you've been here, if, you, if you've heard some of these messages from 1 Timothy, this different doctrine that they've been advancing has been saying that change comes from inside of you. Change comes from deep down. Change comes from your ability to suppress your appetite. From your ability to just say no. That's how you're going to change. That's how you're going to be godly. It's, it's about... I-dotting and T-crossing. And so if that's what you've placed your stock in, and you're thinking and, and believing that it's, it's inside of you and you can do it if you just try hard enough, then what happens when somebody comes along and wants to correct you and say, hey, you've got a problem here? Huh? Well, then we do have a real problem. Because if it's all about me and my effort, and now I've gone and screwed it up, oh man. And we're likely going to be led to one of two places. The first of which being despair and discouragement. Man, I've screwed up again. I just cannot get this right. What is wrong with me? What can, what can I do to try to fix this thing? So that's one place where it will lead. The other place, instead of despair, would be indignation and self-justification. I'm not wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm just fine, thank you. And there can even be a flat-out just denial that a problem even exists. There can be excuse-making and very deadly, there can be comparison. Well, you say I've screwed up here, but I'm still a lot better off than that guy. Still doing a lot better than she is. 
right? And so neither of these places where we end up are healthy places. All right, they're terrible for us. If we've been trusting in our own ability, in our own effort, in our own I-dotting and T-crossing, we're not going to end up in a very good place when we've been corrected. But if our trust is in the gospel, if our trust is in not what we can do, but what has been done for us, finished and complete, right? Where, where Christ has paid for all of my sins and he's paid already for all of the things that need correcting, past, present, and future, right? Then the gospel truth comes to bear that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when someone calls you on something, when someone offers a word of correction, does it still sting a little bit? Of course it does. But when you realize that nothing in that moment changes anything about my relationship to Christ, when you realize that even in that moment of correction, nothing has changed about the Father's favor and delight for me as His daughter or son, then this moment of correction just becomes another opportunity for growth. Right? It doesn't undo me. It doesn't send me into despair or denial. But I can say, yep, blew it here again. And I can take that to the cross. And in repentance, agreeing, saying, yep, blew it again. But then in faith as well, saying, this is what Jesus paid for. This is what Jesus took to the cross. And in trusting what I've mentioned before, a Francis Schaeferism, trusting in the present value of the shed blood of Christ, then I cry out to God and I say, oh God, change me. Right? Change me from the inside out. Work in me what you want. Conform me to your Son, which you've already said in your Word is, is your purpose. Y'all, then that's good. right? That's the Father working all things, even correction, for my good. Right? So that's the very first place that I want you to see from this passage where the Father is offering to His children good. Even in what might seem on the surface like an unlikely place, if somebody has called you out on something, said, hey brother, I think you've got a problem here, or, or, or sister, I, I think you know, you're living contrary to the Scriptures here. Right? Even in that moment, there is good for you. Good for your growth. Good for your sanctification for your godliness. All right. So the second group that God wants to work good for from this passage would be these older widows. So lots of instruction here in chapter 5 about widows. All right. And so as we get into verse 3 here, it might seem a little odd when you read this. All right. Honor widows who are truly widows. Well, I mean, either you are or you're not, right? Um, but as Paul goes on, it begins to make sense. He's explaining what he means by if you are truly a widow. And so he's talking about women who really are left all alone, right? There's no children. There's no family to help out. And it's these widows that Paul wants the church actively involved in supporting. But the other widows who do 
have family, who can help, right, then it's the families that need to help these widows and not the church, right? And I, and I love how Paul puts this in verse, in verse 4. Let's look at verse 4. The, the, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness, right? Isn't this what we've been talking about so much in 1 Timothy is growth in godliness. And here's an opportunity for the families of these widows to demonstrate godliness. It's an opportunity for them to give evidence of what it is they say they believe. Paul goes on to say, let them, let them make some return to their parents, right? So obviously parents, right, we know that we have to give a lot, right? We have to sacrifice uh, in, in the care, in the attention that's required in raising children, right? So it's just right then that these children should make some repayment to their parents, right? That just seems fitting. But it goes deeper than that because this isn't just mere repayment of some debt. Paul says this is an opportunity to show godliness, right? And so here's where the gospel comes into this. Right? Because who better to demonstrate and display generosity and sacrifice than those who have received generosity and who have benefited from sacrifice like no other sacrifice in the world? Right? If we're in Christ, if we're His, then in the gospel, we have been the beneficiaries and the recipients of the world's greatest display of sacrifice and generosity imaginable. So who better then to display that to others? As it's been displayed to you, as it's been given to you, you get to return that. You get to display that. You get to put the evidence of your faith on display. I've said it over and over from this series. Where the gospel is preached and proclaimed and trusted in, lives are going to be changed and transformed. You just can't get around it. And so here's evidence of it. In a simple way, is how we would care for our mother, if she is a widow, or our grandmother, if she is a widow. And Paul's serious about this, right? He's serious about this expectation that the gospel's going to transform lives. And so he gives a pretty strong warning in verse 8. He says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith. And it's worse than an unbeliever, right? So he's saying, all right, guys, if you claim to be a Christ follower, but you don't demonstrate this natural outflow of generosity, then you are proving that what you say isn't real. You're saying with your mouth that you trust Him, but your actions betray you. And so if a widow has family... They need to care for her. See, for that family that's doing the caring, that's God's good thing for them. right? That's the good that God's doing for that family, is giving them the opportunity to show godliness, 
to demonstrate the faith that they say that they have in Christ. All right, but, but not everybody has family who can step in, right? Some widows truly are all alone, and this is where the church has to step in, where the church must step in and be a safety net. And we see from verse 9 that the church took this responsibility seriously, right? It says, let a widow be enrolled. Let a widow be enrolled. If, if that sounds to you kind of uh, formal, and an official, like some type of structure that existed? Well, it did. Church history shows that, that the church took this responsibility very seriously and that there was, a, there was an official and a structured program for the care of these widows. And so for an official and a structured program, Paul gives some qualifications and says, all right, Here's the widows who need to be enrolled in this type of a program that the church is doing. The first is an age requirement, 60 or older. And we'll get into that a little bit more in a second. But then in verses 9 and 10, we've got just this great list of, of qualifications that in its essence is just showing that, all right, this is a godly woman, right? The, 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 the type of widow that the church is going to be supporting through this program is a godly woman. Right? And so we see the, the marital faithfulness, right? the reputation for good works, and it goes on and on. Right? And, and we saw back in verse 5, there was a, a hint even in verse 5 of, of what's going on with this woman. Well, this woman has set her hope on God, and she's continuing in a life of dependence. She's pouring out supplications uh, and her prayers uh, to the Father. Right? These are all evidences of godliness, right? So these are women for whom their lives match what they are professing. But back in verse 6, Paul sets up this contrast between these godly widows and another group of widows whom he labels self-indulgent. And he's setting up the contrast here that he'll further explain in verse 11 as we get to these younger widows. So we've got an older group of widows, and now we've got a group of younger widows. So here's our third point from verses 11 and 12. But refuse, pretty strong language, to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Yikes. So here's where the age thing comes in. If you're under 60, right, the church's program of support for widows, it's not for you. And that seems kind of harsh. That seems like, hey, we're not going to help you. Okay? But, but listen, keep this in context. Right? What Paul's doing here is making a case that the church's support for younger widows would not be good for them. It would not be for their good in a Romans 8.28 sense of good. Right? No. If, if you're too young, the church's support could actually lead you away from Christ. It could actually lead you to abandon the faith. 
And so Paul lists some of these problems here in verse 13, which we saw when I read these problems of too much idleness, time on your hands, gossip, becoming busybodies. And so in verse 14, he suggests a different path for these younger widows. He says, let these younger widows remarry and raise children and manage households and do all these good works. Now, if you're paying attention, and I hope you are, I hope you're scratching your head a little bit and you're thinking, now, wait a minute. Didn't verse 11 say remarriage was a bad thing for these women? But now in 14 he's saying it's a good thing. Um, And I put both of these up on a slide just to... I want to deal with this, right? So refuse to enroll younger widows... For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation. Right? So that sounds like a bad thing. Okay? But verse 14, Paul says, So I would have younger widows marry. That sounds like a good thing. And so, Paul, make up your mind. But here's what I think the difference is. Right? In verse 11... Right? In verse 11, their desire for marriage comes after their passions have already drawn them away from Christ. Presumably, maybe even after they were enrolled in this church's support program too young. And these problems came up. And so now you've got a woman who's not following the Lord. Right? whose passions have been drawn away from him, and now she's desiring to marry. Now she's looking for a husband. I wonder what kind of a man this woman, not walking with the Lord, is going to be attracted to. I wonder what kind of man is going to be drawn to this woman who's not walking with the Lord. And you can begin to see here how this is most likely not a good thing at all. This does not sound like a good thing from the Lord. But in verse 14, right, instead of being enrolled, instead of being drawn away from Christ, if as the first step you're pursuing remarriage and child rearing and managing your household, see all of these, all of these good things that the Father has for you, right? then instead of this idle time, there's good work to do. And that's what we saw was part of what made the godly widow godly. If you look back in verse 10, it says she had devoted herself to every good work. Her life was not idle. Her life was full of the good that the Lord had prepared for her to do. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.10 that there are good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. Right? That's part of his good that he's given to us. Shay and I got to get away for a week. And it was wonderful. It was so great. Um, but for me, it was also a little frightening. It was frightening in the sense of I was shocked at how quickly I could become so self-absorbed. And I shouldn't be shocked because it's just sinful flesh, you know. 
But it's almost like you get on the plane and the click of the seatbelt and every care and concern just melts away, right? And it is me, 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 me for a week, <laughs> right? And a little of that can be a good thing. But I realized, I guess kind of in the middle of it, Shay and I were walking through a park late at night after another fabulous dinner. And I told her, I said, it is a good thing that we have a house full of um, responsibilities at home. Right? That we have all of these uh, commitments and obligations, these things that require of us our attention and our focus and our sacrifice and our time and our energy. That's a good thing from the Lord that turns our focus away from me, 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 me. And it turns it outward. Right? That's, that's part of the Lord's good for us. That's part of our sanctification. Right? It's when we're brought to the place that it's no longer just me, 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 but that it's others. There, there's good work to be done. That's part of the Lord's good. And I think that's really what Paul is getting at here for these younger widows. Right? There's good work for you to do, and it is for your good that you do it. It's for your growth that your focus is not on you, but that your focus is on others. Do the good works God has prepared for you. And so the very last verse of this passage is, I see it just as another little example here in verse 16, right? Uh, believing women, if you've got relatives who are widows, care for them. Care for them. And then there's a, a, a practical aside here about sort of this whole scheme of things for th this program for the care of widows and, and caring for those who are truly widows. What does that do? Well, it frees up the church's resources to go where they're really needed. Right? So it's, a, it's of a practical benefit for the church. So I hope that you can see sort of this Romans 8.28 tie-in here. There's lots of good available for lots of people here, right? There's good for older widows. There's good for those in need of correction. There's, there's good for younger widows who do the good works that God has prepared for him. There's good for families who take care of their widows. But now let me wrap this up by way of a, of a confession of sorts. Uh, of something that I almost missed. And it's one of those... You can't see the forest for the trees kind of situations. Uh, because as I studied this, man, I just got bogged down in all of these details and all of these scenarios involving these different widows, right? So there's widows who are young and there's widows who are old and there's widows who do have families to help and widows who don't have families to help. There are godly widows, there are self-indulgent widows, and uh, okay? And so these are the trees, if you will, all of these different situations and scenarios. But I, I realized at one point, that I had been thinking about widow in terms of a category of people or in terms of a label that some women have and not in terms of the life event 
that got them there in the first place. The, the trauma, the tragedy of losing your husband. And so in that moment, it ceased to be sort of a category that I was thinking about. And here are these women for whom their husbands have died. And what really struck me is that there are two categories of widows in this passage. And I'm not talking old and young. I'm talking godly widows who have their hope firmly set on the Lord and self-indulgent widows who've abandoned the faith. And it just begs the question, what makes the difference? What makes the difference? Because the same life, the same tragic, traumatic life event happened, but it leaves some women with their hope firmly set on the Lord, and some women abandoning the faith, then we need to know the difference. What makes the difference? And it all comes down, surprise, surprise, to the gospel. Is your hope firmly fixed in the gospel Or is it somewhere else? Is it in some different doctrine? Now, I can't rehash all that we've looked at in this series. But let me give it to you in a nutshell here. If your trust is in I-dotting and T-crossing, if your trust is in what you do for God, then when tragedy strikes, you're very likely to throw up your hands and say, God, how could you? After all I've done for you, after how good I've tried to be, this is not the good that I read in Romans 8.28. And so in the face of tragedy, your I-dotting and your T-crossing comes crashing down around you and you're very likely going to walk away. But if your trust is not in what you have done, but in what another has done and finished and completed for you, when you realize that he doesn't owe you anything for the good life you think that you've tried to live, but you realize that you in fact owe him Everything. Though you may not immediately understand the tragedy that has come, and it certainly doesn't take the pain away, you remember. You remember that He's already met you that He's already provided for you and taken care of the greatest need you could ever have by giving up His own Son for you. So how will He not meet me in this need as well? 
How will he not? You see, the cross is our greatest example of God working all things together for good. You realize that? Because Jesus, unjustly condemned and hanging on a tree to die, does not look like a good thing. And yet there's never been a better thing that has happened. So no matter what you're facing this morning, be it a widow who's still grieving and experiencing all that comes from the death of a spouse, or if it's something else, no matter what you're facing this morning, you can have your hope firmly set on the Father because of what He's already done for you. Folks, that's gospel Christianity. And may God grant to us the grace and the faith to place our faith there and to fully rest there. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You are a God who works all things together for good. Even when we've been corrected, even when we have responsibilities that we need to meet, even when, or even especially when, when tragedy comes our way. Lord, you meet us there, and you've spared nothing for us in giving us your Son. So Lord, by the working of Your grace in our hearts, make us confident that You'll continue to spare no good thing for us and in Your care of us. Grant us faith to believe. Grant us faith to place our hope and our trust again and again in what Christ has done for us and not in what we think we can do for you. We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.